Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome to Coast to Coast AM, the very best in late-night talk radio. I'm Richard Serrett, and tonight, this morning, we are coming to you live from my home studio in old Thornhill, just north of Toronto. Just as a warning, you may hear the occasional honk-honk in the background, and I'm not talking about some kind of repeat of the Truckers Freedom Convoy that descended on Ottawa a year and a half ago. I'm referring, of course, to my son Zachary's ducks. Uh, Last time we spoke, they were ducklings, and now they are practically full-fledged ducks. Their white feathers are coming in. Uh, They'll devour about a half a bag of frozen peas a day, and they are developing their honk. We used to be able to scoop them up, uh, one in each hand, and hold them like a champagne glass, and uh, now it takes two hands just to hold and manage one, barely. And uh, Zach and I spent most of the day outside in the backyard building their coop with wooden boards and scraps of chicken wire, and we're hoping to get the ducklings Tipu and Binu moved outdoors by midweek next week because, quite frankly, they are starting to smell. Keeping them alive outdoors in the winter and keeping the coyotes and foxes and raccoons at bay uh, should prove to be very interesting. And uh, we also learned one is a male. We were hoping for two females because, well, we want eggs, uh, not more ducklings. So we're trying to decide whether to just separate the pair, which seems kind of cruel, or do we let them mate and produce maybe one brood of ducklings, then give the ducklings plus the male, uh, I'm not sure if that's Tipu or Binu, I can't remember, (laughs) anyway, give the male and the ducklings to a nearby farm we found on Kijiji. Do you have Kijiji in the U.S.? Uh, Well, it's basically Craigslist. Anyway, take the male and the ducklings to this farm, and get another female. Uh, None of this is going over well with Zach, I must say. Both ducks are heavily imprinted on him and he on them. Just to give you an idea, he takes his afternoon naps after school on the front lawn with the two ducks asleep on his chest. Coming up on the show tonight, in hours one and two, former U.S. Army special agent and author of Dozens of suspense and supernatural thrillers. David Edward returns to Coast. Previously, he was here to discuss his uh, book, Atlanta Solved, The Final Definitive Truth. This time, David has teamed up with popular YouTuber John Levy, whose channel has a dedicated audience of about 300,000 subscribers, and it explores the forgotten history of humanity and other mysteries. Together, they've just published Evidence of the Old World, which offers a groundbreaking re-examination of historical architecture and urban landscapes, challenging conventional wisdom through rigorous academic scrutiny. Utilizing multidisciplinary insights, Edward and Levy unravel hidden complexities in history, which lead to some earth-shattering questions regarding the narratives that have shaped our world. Hidden uh, Edward and Levy focus on cartography, map-making, in other words, and much of tonight's discussion will revolve around their scrutinizing maps of North America, in particular, an unexpected discovery 
on a San Francisco map. Levy and Edward will also discuss some possible hidden agendas behind the world fairs, particularly the seemingly impossible logistics surrounding the rapid construction and then subsequent de- uh, demolition of elaborate buildings and artifacts. The, the 1893, uh, 1893 Chicago World's Fair, for example. If you've ever questioned the standard narrative that have been handed down through generations, then you're going to enjoy the first half of tonight's coast. Coming up in hours three and four, a coast favorite returns to the program. UFO researcher and prolific author Preston Dennett will share some of the 20 cases in his new book, Humanoids and High Strangeness, first-hand accounts of alien contact from people across the world, face-to-face meetings with ETs, UFO landings, onboard experiences and encounters with humanoids of every imaginable kind, bizarre events that defy rational explanation. Coming up first, a groundbreaking re-examination of historical architecture and urban landscapes, which which challenges conventional wisdom and historical timelines. David Edward and John Levy are next. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. I'm Richard Serrett, and this is Coast to Coast AM. Why don't you stay a while? John Levy has brewed success for over two decades in the coffee business, but John's flavor palette extends beyond just coffee. He's chosen the adventurous path of setting up home on a vast 20-acre plot near Utah's mysterious Skinwalker Ranch, proving his mettle and penchant for unique off-grid experiences. In contrast, through his At John Levy channel, YouTube, John delves into the overlooked and mysterious corners of history. With a dedicated audience of nearly 300,000 subscribers, he's continually shaking up receptions and helping us separate fact from fiction. His meticulous research doesn't just challenge the status quo. It filters out the myths, leaving behind the rich aroma of historical truth. John Levy, welcome to Coast to Coast. How are you? Oh, good. Thanks, Richard. Good to David be here. Edward, great to have you. David Edward served as a special agent in the U.S. Army in the 1980s and 90s and is a veteran of multiple overseas combat tours. He was the special agent in charge for the 1990 Panama Canal Counterterrorism Threat Assessment Report to the U.S. Congress. He's a graduate of the United States Army Intelligence School, where he studied advanced human intelligence and battlefield counterintelligence, also completing training at the Jungle Operations Training Center in in Panama. He holds advanced degrees in engineering, including a doctorate in engineering and three related master's of science degrees, and has an undergraduate degree in business. He's published dozens of books in the suspense and supernatural thriller genre. More recently, he published a book of nonfiction, Atlantis Solved, The Final Definitive Truth. David Edward and John Levy have just published Evidence of the Old World. David, welcome back to Coast to Coast. How are you? I'm good, Richard, and I just wanted to, based on your introduction, let you know that I'm an indoor duck, if that comes up. <laughs> You're an indoor duck, yes. I'm an indoor duck, yes. <laughs> the the, the very... winter does not sound like where I want to be. <laughs> you are very un... – you are an unorthodox. Uh... <laughs> Thank you. 
un- unorthodox. Yes. Um, this book, un- um, uh, sorry, Evidence of the Old World, I mean, th- this is really just uh, capturing people's attention. Uh, it's only been out, I believe, since September 15th, so just about two weeks. And um, what am I reading here? It's already um, ahead of uh, uh, Fingerprints of the Gods uh, by uh, Graham Hancock and um, Von Tannigan's Chariots of the Gods. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, no, the, the, the reception of the book, it, it jumped up to uh, number one in the category, and it's, it's getting close to the top Amazon list of books, period. So it's being very well received, surprisingly, um, but, but welcomingly, too. So yeah, we're very excited. Can we start a little bit with, and I don't know who wants to handle this, um, David or John, about John's research, your your research, John, and what you do on your YouTube channel. Well, um, I pretty much uh, just look at history with an open mind, uh, looking at the stories that they give us. And what I found is there's a lot of discrepancies for the stories that we just kind of take for granted. And not just in America, but all over the world. So it's been uh, unfolding for about five years now. And there's a lot more to our history than we just kind of took for granted. And and David, did you want to add anything to, to, to John's, uh, to just sort of kind of frame his research? Yeah, and John's research, you know, I, I discovered it. Um, earlier this year, and it's really mesmerizing. I recommend people check it out on his uh, John Levi channel on YouTube. He's got almost 300 videos out there. And what I found fascinating about it, you know, I'd done the Atlantis research, and I was looking for the next thing to look into. And through these videos, John has documented, like he said, almost five years of research. And it's right there, and we can go on the journey with him um, to look at it. And when he and I kind of connected, we decided what we wanted to do was take all of that research and start organizing it and pulling out the different pieces of evidence, because there's some real hard evidence that, um, that John has collected. Normally when you write these books, you know, you have to kind of start by yourself and figure it out. But I, I had five years worth of research to go to. And um, John also, this is, he's not a keyboard warrior. Uh, you know, he, he gets out there, boots on the ground. He's visited dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of sites. And what we found is that there's definitely a story uh, against the uh, American history, North American history that we're given, specifically the U.S. and Canada. Uh, And really the history, and John, you can correct me, but really it's the history between about the 1500s and the 1800s. And kind of the conclusion of the book, and, and I think this would be one of the early conclusions that you gain when you watch John's research, is that And it's most generous if you dig into this older history of North America. uh, It becomes clear that whatever happened, it didn't happen in the order that we're given in the current historical narratives. So we started to dig into that, and and pretty quickly, very simple things, you know, uh, unravel. And you can see that whatever was going on... um, uh, it's not it's not in the right order, which which makes things very confusing and very fragmented and very difficult sometimes uh, to look at. We wound up digging into San Francisco, which we can go into, just because um, with North America, you know, we, do, we don't have the same length of history. It's not as complicated a history as, as with Europe and some of the other places um, around the globe. 
and we so you're able to you know more more easily push aside a lot of the noise and just look at what happened. And I think that's kind of where we started with the book. I don't know, John, if you want to add to that or not, but um, I think that's basically the idea mm. of the book, and the book lays the evidence out. Yeah, I, I think really every every city. Um, over the years that I've looked at this, has a very similar history where the most beautiful and elaborate buildings are built initially, and then everything kind of goes downhill from there. And San Francisco was a great place to examine this because, again, it was established in 1849, so we figured there you know, wasn't that much to look at, and yet it it had the same theme. In one year, the city is completely um, built out. Phase one, as far as we can see from the photographic evidence, and we looked at maps as well, and we see structures depicted before the city was even built. So the, the idea that the timeline that we've been fed of, of North American history is, as you say, uh, David, at, and the most generous interpretation would be that it's in the wrong order, that it's sort of jumbled up. Um, so let's – you mentioned San Francisco. Um, oh, um, I think there's a, um, a news article that kind of sets the stage that you wanted to read from, uh, David. It's just a short sort of four sentences. Did you want to give that to us before we get into San Francisco? Yeah, and I have a couple of specific examples because it's it's hard to frame this research up and it's hard to really know where to enter it. Um, And and when you start explaining, it's a little awkward until people kind of can kind of see three or four different points. But some of the evidence that we started looking at when we looked at – because we looked at newspaper articles, photos. um, We tried to push aside what what they call in in academic secondary sources. That would be where other people have looked at stuff, and then they're telling you their interpretation of it. And we wanted to go back to primary sources. And newspaper articles are are a good example of primary sources. So, for example, there's one that John found a couple years ago. This is from 1858. And it's from the Raftsman's Journal. It's entitled Antiquities in America. And this is just a little excerpt from it. This is the kind of stuff that hints to us that there's something more out there. So it just basically says, uh, this is reading from the article. It says, strange as it may appear, America abounds in antiquities so extensive, so beautiful, and so majestic as to rival those of Thebes and Nineveh. Ruins of ancient cities of immense extent with walls built of hewn stone showing a refined taste and architecture and adorned with human figures, beautifully executed, remains of ancient palaces with beautiful specimens of sculptures and paintings with many other marks of ancient greatness proved to us that this is not a new world, but that a powerful empire existed in the state of civilization far beyond anything we have been led to conceive of prior to the discovery of the continent by Europeans. And, and we find these types of clues everywhere. And, and largely, many of them are covered up, and many of them kind of disappear, but, but the, 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 the breadcrumbs are out there. And we see stuff like that, and then we said, well, that's, you know, that, that sounds like um, it's describing a different history in North America than you know, we're told. So we started looking at maps, and what happens is when you go back and you look at maps from – the 1500s and the 1600s, you see a North American continent that includes Canada that um, is populated with cities. 
Uh, and and uh, these cities, they, they have walls around them, and they have buildings, and they have some of them have little looking antenna on top of the buildings. We have great pictures of these in the book. And they're in places where uh, there are cities today. So Chicago, for example, Chilaga, it, we, we see that Chilaga on maps. Uh, San Francisco, the, the, the narrative of San Francisco is that it was discovered in 1769, the bay was discovered. Uh, it was mapped in 1775 by a guy named uh, Juan Manuel de uh, Adaya. And then in 1776, they kind of started moving in. They put a, a mission in and uh, dedicated the bay and named the city after St. Francis of Assisi. I always say that wrong, so, John, you can correct me if I said that wrong. Uh, but that's where, that's where the name San Francisco comes from. The problem is we can find maps from 200 years prior to these dates that show S. Francisco and San Francisco with a, with a little city in the same location. Uh, so that's yeah, that's a map by uh, Ur- Urbano Monte, Urbano Monte's 1587 map. Um, and it says San Francisco right on the map. Uh, above it is Chicanon or Chicanov, and below, below is a, a place called Volcani. I'm just looking at the map here. Urbano Monte's 1587 map, San Francisco. But as you say, it, it wasn't discovered until 1767, 1769. It's almost I mean, practically 200 years later. So, so see, so something, something, so something is out of something is out of order, because we can see the name at the at the place, uh, and the and the later maps they look like bays. I mean, it's clearly San Francisco, but it's 200 years before the narrative. Now, and, we and also. Also, when we look at photographs, the earliest photographs of San Francisco, this city looks old. I mean, it looks like a 200-year-old city. A very small population and brick buildings before there's even manufacturers of bricks in the local area. And it's the same kind of footprint that we see in every city. Uh, 1849 was, well, the, the gold rush, right? The, the San Francisco 49ers, the gold rush in 49. Uh, there were like, I think in, you, you document in the book, Evidence of the Old World, there was something like six fires between the 1849 and 1851 where, I mean, not just little minor fires. I mean, the entire city was practically razed. Uh, and yet you say you have these pictures of brick buildings uh, that looked what to be already t- uh, several hundred years old. Absolutely, yeah, it, it, it's hard to unravel it all. We have so you know we we we'd like to go to the primary sources. So so this this guy um, Adaya who who mapped the the bay in 1775, first time ever was mapped. Um, we've pulled that map up, and it, it's just hilarious. There, there's a castle on it, and there's a big there's a star fort on it. Um, and it's it's got buildings and it's starting to show development. Where there's something there, and this is a firsthand account. And this is bef- before even the mission was supposedly built. Uh, so yeah, every, the earliest reference we have to that area uh, on anything that a human has, has written uh, suggests that there was something there at least as early as 1579. Uh, All right. I've got to take a time out uh, as we approach the bottom of the hour. 
John Levy and David Edwards stay with us on Coast to Coast AM. Welcome back. In the uh, new Steven Spielberg produced Netflix documentary, Encounters, now streaming, there was an eye-popping number of witnesses to one of the UFO incidents. For five months after October 2007, more than 300 locals near Stephenville, Texas, reported seeing a large delta-shaped UFO. Witnesses all reported it to be enormous. Some estimates said it was a mile long. Others claimed it was the length of 17 football fields. Various witnesses said they saw it hovering around with lights. The most widely publicized incident was on January 8, 2008, when 19 witnesses alleged they saw the UFO as it passed west from Dublin, Texas to Stephenville, pursued by U.S. military fighter pilots. The mass sighting made national news in 2008. Coverage of it appeared in ABC News, the Los Angeles Times, CBS News, and on National Public Radio. Encounters is just the latest project from Spielberg's longtime fascination with UFOs and extraterrestrials, which of course have included E.T., Indiana Jones, and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, War of the Worlds, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You can read more about the Netflix series in the In the News section of a Coast to Coast am.com back to more of my conversation with john levy and david edward the authors of evidence of the old world when coast to coast continues right after these and we are back with john levy and david edward the book is evidence of the old world we were talking about uh san francisco which was first charted on a map supposedly i mean according to the official historical timeline uh, around 1767. Uh, uh, but these gentlemen have uncovered a map from uh, someone named Urban Monte. Um, and the the timeline was about 200 years prior. So in the, in the 1560s, not the 1760s, in the 1560s. Uh, and yet early photographs, um, the earliest photographs of San Francisco uh, you know, which is primarily comprised comprised of wooden structures. Um, um, you know, we, we see buildings that appear to be two hundred years old or or more. Uh, incidentally, uh, John and David, there is a um, you've set up a database um, at althist dot com. Uh, tell us about it. What's the purpose and and how to uh, how do people get involved? Thanks. Yeah, that's this is incredibly exciting. What, what we're trying to do when, when we started doing this research, one of the first things we noticed is that it's ridiculously difficult to get access to a lot of these uh, primary documents, I mean, mostly you know photos and maps and, and things that were created over a hundred years ago. And it's fascinating because you know the copyright on these things wear out after a hundred years. There is no copyright. So what we've started is a website at, at althist.com, and then there's a link on the top. It's called the Old World Catalog. And we've started pooling and loading in all of these old images uh, onto this site, and then we made them available for everyone. So anyone can look at them totally free. You can download all of them totally free. We don't put watermarks on them. That's another thing that happens. These libraries and, not, and supposed not-for-profit entities that store a lot of these old photos, they – they, they put them behind paywalls, they put them behind difficult research walls, or they watermark them. So you can't just take them and, and, and look at them because they've got stuff on the top. So 
Uh, the other cool thing that that site does is people can upload their own pictures. Because one of the things we found is very valuable, I mentioned the boots on the ground, but actually uh, getting to a lot of these buildings still exist and, and getting current pictures and then being able to uh, analyze those. We have some uh, forensic tools that we actually use on the photos, and then we can align the current picture to the old picture and see what's changed, what hasn't changed, and, and really glean a lot of information from it. But yeah, althist.com uh, has that database, and we really want this to become the Wikipedia of old world research, and, and we're hoping that it will. All right. So um, we're going to stick with San Francisco for a moment, but we need kind of a crash course on star forts uh and we'll and we'll later discuss far star forts in connection with the, the lost colony of roanoke but there are star forts uh you, that you uncovered in san francisco what what is a star fort a, a star fort is typically um in, in history called the bastion fort and it's a massive fortification often shaped like a star with walls seven feet thick and they're usually made of brick and and made for military purposes, we're told. But we find them all over the world built in the exact same style. And uh, we found one in San Francisco, and it even shows up on this old map as a star. Isn't that right underneath the Golden Gate Bridge? Yes. Yeah, it's yep. currently and, called... Go ahead, David. I was going to say, it's, it's currently called Fort Point. But, but what's very cool, there's a lot of history to this thing. I, I mentioned that the original survey that uh, Adaya did in 1775, he has where that uh, star fort is labeled on his map, and he calls it the Point of the Guardian Angel, which is just kind of neat. It's, I, I, that name is intriguing to me. Uh, and we've even found pictures of... Fort Point, that star fort in San Francisco, uh, that predate the construction narrative of the fort. So, you know, our theme is that things are, are not in the right Completely order. built out. Yeah, completely built out. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so we can find references to it on maps from 100 years before it was even conceived, and we can find some of the earliest pictures. And remember, photography doesn't really show up till about 1850. It's, it's tough to find anything too much before that. And even the images you have in 1850, they, they cannot be that great. But we found an image from 1856 that's got the thing completely done, built, nothing's going on by it, it's just sitting there, but it wasn't supposedly finished for another 10 years, well, eight years. Um, and we have all kinds of anomalies like that that we found. The, another interesting thing on that original survey by the castle that I mentioned, it, it's a big lagoon, it's called the Lagoon of Sorrows. And, and all of these things, seem to be suggesting that there's infrastructure and there are things there with names and, and a layout, again, hundreds of years uh, prior to, we're told, to even the founding of the city, much less the build-out of the city. Is it possible that Star Fort in San Francisco um, would date back to uh, Urban Monte's map of 1569, I think it was? Well, Go ahead, John. I don't want to. Oh, I—I I mean, I—I th I think so. I think that's what they were depicting in those in in all the maps. You can see that star fort and a city of castles 
which we see in the older maps, cities of castles where there are now cities. And, and what better way to depict uh, a city than, than castles? And they really are castles. That's what's interesting. Um, you know, even every state in the nation has uh, some sort of uh, mental hospital or insane asylum, and these are often castles. A lot of them have been torn down, but a lot of them still exist. And if this was true, and these were older, and they're trying to tell us that they um, that our history is is actually much younger, then they would have to hastily create a, a narrative for these buildings. And they do. Many of these buildings, uh, oftentimes million square foot buildings, are built in one year. And we have a, a section in the book where we just go through what we call one-year wonders. And these are just breathtaking European-style buildings built in one year in the 1850s. Horse and wagon, pre-power. So it really adds uh, to, to this idea is what I'm saying. So in other words, in order to fit the narrative, they had to kind of shoehorn the construction of this building, uh, which is inconceivable, logistically impossible to build, as you said, a million square foot structure in one year. In other words, that's it's not true. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, it, that, that that's what you're left with. I mean, anybody who's even witness construction. You don't even have to be in the construction business. Um, you know, anyone who's witnessed uh, road construction in their neighborhood, um, you know, sees how much time it takes. Uh, when you think of the Erie Canal, the Erie Canal, 350 miles, was um, was created in eight years, in, in 1817, horse and buggy. So, so even things like that, even the infrastructure, like a 350-mile canal, they have to condense the narrative. And now it's an eight-year project um, with, with horse and, and wagons. Uh, David uh, and John, did you, didn't you, uh, if I'm thinking correctly or remembering correctly, you utilized um, some AI Mm-hmm. in order to calculate uh, logistically whether the construction of some of these massive uh, stone brick edifices could have been completed uh, in, in, in the timeline that were given in the official sort of historical narrative. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're using – we're bringing modern tools to bear. And with AI uh, – and one of my books is on AI, and we use AI there's, – there's, there's two ways to use AI in research. There's kind of broad AI, which is the, the generic stuff that people think of, and, 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 like, you go to AI and you say, write me a book, and it writes a bunch of nonsense. But then we use what, we, what they call narrow AI. So we're able to pull it down, and we can pull the AI models down, and then we can teach them very specific things. So in, in the cases here, we're able to feed it um, the attributes and the construction narrative of these buildings and have it work with us to uh, reverse engineer what the supply chain, logistics, what ma- the material chain would have looked like, uh, where it would have come from. It can help us search for 
you know, if they're building brick, we need clay and we need the components for mortar and, and sand and we need a place to fire them and we need all these things. And it, it can do the math. It would have taken me, you know, a lot longer to do the math uh, to figure out what type of material acquisition we'd be looking at. And then we can project, project that back into 1850 San Francisco. And, and you mentioned uh, th there were six disasters, five fires and an earthquake that had fires, all in the course of about a year, year and a half. So you have this environment that is basically hell on earth. Uh, everything is constantly burning down. The construction narrative is that uh, these are uh, American exceptionalism and really robust people, and they wouldn't let it get to them. They just kept rebuilding the buildings. But you ask yourself, okay, well, how many bricks did they use, and who made bricks in the U.S.? And we do that type of research, and we see the major brick companies don't show up in California until the 1880s. So they're 30 years too late for this. Uh, and John has done just an amazing amount of research tracing the maker's marks on bricks. And he's, he's found different brick maker's marks that come from uh, Europe uh, and other places that logistically, and this is, remember, this is before the Panama Canal. There's, there's very difficult to get to California if you're coming with a boatload of bricks from Europe. Uh, so we, we can look at all of that stuff, and AI can help us put that together and find discrepancies uh, much quicker than if we was just him and I, you know, you know, searching for it ourselves. All right. So um, we've got just about five minutes here uh, before the top of the hour. And so we'll start this leg of the conversation now and, and pick it up on the other side. But let's talk about the lost colony of Roanoke uh, and yet another map. This is, um, is it John White who founded that colony, colony off of uh, North Carolina? Was it North Carolina, South Carolina? Um, yeah. Uh, and on his return trip, the colony had, uh, vanished. Um, tell us about what did he, what, what's on, the, what's on that map that, uh, he made after he, he returned. Yeah, John, do you want to go over that one? Oh, you can. I mean, I mean, yeah, he, he, there, there's a star fort. There's basically a star fort on that map, but it had a patch on it. And actually, David, why don't you tell this story? Yeah, so I mean, we, the, you know, the Lost Colony of Roanoke, obviously, it's, it's famous for its own reasons. There's a lot of uh, Krakatoa mystery, you know, what happened to him, where'd they go, what, what was the relationship with the Indians. When John White returned, uh, and he was the governor, and he had gone back to Europe to get supplies and stuff. He came back uh, three years later. Everyone was gone. His, his, his uh, wife and daughter are missing. And as he is uh, searching for him, he makes a, a beautiful map where he's kind of mapping the coastal areas and some of the inland areas. It's a very famous map, the John White map. You can look it up. It's housed in the British Museum. And in 2010, uh, some researchers from the University of North Carolina got interested in the area and the map, and they wanted to um, uh, do some archaeology there. They contacted the British Museum, uh, and they asked them, because there's a patch on the map that covers something up, and it's on this peninsula up a river near the Roanoke Colony. So they asked the British Museum to scan it in 2012, and yeah, 2012 they finally scanned it, and it's a star fort, which it, when you fall into this old-world space, what you find are these star forts, which, which have a, a, an English or a European history, a French history and stuff. Um, but this is way, 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 way too early for any kind of stretch like that. I mean, we're dealing with a colony that can barely survive, right, uh, over a couple winters. And, and now we have a patch on a map hiding 
a, uh, a star fort. And, and this opened up these maps of the time. They, they all seem to suggest that there's more going on in the North American continent. And, this is, and that was another example of it. Now, the other interesting thing is, and this is from Joe. Well, let me just point out, because uh, I don't think we mentioned it, uh, David, the, the, um, when, when uh, John White is making this map and, and the Roanoke Colony, we're talking 15, is it 1587? 15, I, 15, yeah, 1587. 1587. And, and, he, and there was a, a star fort. Uh, was it buried at the time or? I don't think so. I think I mean he drew it. He drew it big on the map, and then someone came behind him or forced him to do it. To do it, and they put a patch over it so you can't see it. So the um, the British Museum had to scan it. I don't think it was overly complicated. I think just some light on the bottom and stuff. But then they were able to scan it, and we have a picture of this in the book. Uh, and it's 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 a star fort. And again, and now it's a golf course. Now it's a golf course. I understand. Well, that's what, yeah. So that so that's the conspiracy. The conspiracy is they hide these things by building golf courses over them. And I couldn't believe it. My jaw was on the floor because that golf course they built was kind of hastily put together, and it was built right at this time, or 2010 or so, when the University of North Carolina got interested in the area. Now they can't excavate there. They're excavating, and they have a dig site a little bit to the north, but, that, but it's worthless because they're not where this, this fort was. So we can't Very. see the archaeology because it's been scraped away. Very suspicious. All right, we're approaching the top of the hour. John Levy, David Edwards, stay with us. The book is Evidence of the Old World. Back with more of our conversation right here on Coast to Coast AM.